Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Discover. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. That means no waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hey, podcast listeners, our new book, Think Like a Freak, is out on May 12th. You can visit Freakonomics.com to learn more or pre-order a copy or 100 copies if you need them. And happy news here. We are bringing back our free signed book plate offer, which means you can turn a regular old copy of Think Like a Freak into a snazzy autographed copy. You just fill in your information at Freakonomics.com and we will mail you free a hand-signed autographed book plate to stick in your book or on your forehead or whatever floats your boat. Thanks. Oh, you know I love animals, and I particularly love giraffes. That's Steve Levitt, my Freakonomics friend and co-author. He's a giraffe-loving economist at the University of Chicago. One of the high points of my life was um, when a giraffe stuck his three-foot-long tongue out and licked me all over the face. Really? Where did that happen? Was that in a private setting or in a zoo? <laughs> in Wisconsin Dells, of all places. You can oh. do anything in Wisconsin Dells. <laughs> and, and what was your response to that? Did you just fall in love with him? It was crazy. I mean, the tongue was amazing. Hmm. Any idea why he chose you? Because I had a bunch of food, uh, uh-huh. which I had purchased in order to get him to do that. So you already loved giraffes by the time that happened? Absolutely. So what, how would you have felt then if five minutes after that incredibly intense, intimate bonding moment, the zookeeper had come up and taken this giraffe and put a bullet in his head in front of your eyes and your kid's eyes? I would have felt outraged. From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Okay, so as you may know, this scenario that I just described to Steve Levitt, the sudden and very public death of a zoo giraffe, wasn't imaginary. It actually happened at the Copenhagen Zoo in Denmark. The giraffe was named Marius. Marius, a dewy-eyed, perfectly healthy 18-month-old giraffe, has been wandering in and out of his stall, blissfully unaware of his impending fate. His misfortune... Here, speaking through an interpreter, is the veterinarian who did the deed. The giraffe walked out here at quarter past nine and was led out into its yard over there. 
Then there was a zookeeper with some rye bread. He really likes rye bread. And he said, here you go, Marius. Here's some rye bread. I stood behind with a rifle, and when he put his head forward and ate the rye bread, I shot him straight through the brain. It sounds violent, but it means that Marius... Then the vet butchered Marius's corpse in front of a crowd, including lots of kids. The giraffe meat would be fed to the zoo's lions and tigers and polar bears. The zoo made clear that it killed Marius out of kindness to some degree. Marius was two years old, healthy and happy. But not allowed to breed, genetically too similar to the other giraffes. Copenhagen Zoo said Marius would break European rules on inbreeding. Their view was that castrating Marius and not allowing him to be a father would be cruel. It was kinder to kill him. Much of the world did not see it that way. Marius is taught. I think it's wrong. You don't put down a young and healthy animal. I know life is a cycle and lions don't eat porridge. I know that. So outrage has escalated to death threats. That's right, death threats against some of the staff at the Copenhagen Zoo. It's not hard to understand why so many people were so upset by the public assassination of a zoo giraffe. Steve Levitt, who gets outraged at almost nothing, admits that even he would have felt outraged. So you'd think that if we can exhibit so much emotion and empathy over the fate of one animal, like Marius, we'd surely exhibit even more emotion and empathy over the fate of hundreds of thousands of the human animal. Wouldn't you? Okay. Ami? Yeah, hi, Steve. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks. Emil Hirsch is senior rabbi at the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York City. He's a friend of mine. The Stephen Wise congregation has a long tradition of being on the right side of history when it comes to human rights and civil rights. We are speaking today because of a sermon I heard you give about, I believe it was called Obligations and Deeds, but really the the passage in particular that really struck me was the passage about the giraffe. Um, so I- I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just reading or paraphrasing that brief part of the sermon for me. Sure. It was. It struck me because uh, if uh, you recall that week, there was a saturation coverage of a Danish zoo that killed a giraffe in front of dozens of schoolchildren and fed it to the lions. And it struck me that uh, that received so much attention and so much publicity. Uh, Not that I'm in favor of uh, killing giraffes in general or killing any (laughs) animals, let alone in front of children. But it was at the time when there was such savagery around the world. In particular, hundreds of people on that week were butchered in Syria. Uh, And there was such little coverage about that event and uh, so much coverage about uh, the killing of uh, one giraffe. Uh, that it simply struck me that uh, that probably says something about how we think and about the nature of our society. So what does it say about us, whether the us is modern humans or just humans throughout time, that we can get so upset over things with such relatively low stakes? I mean, look, a giraffe, I feel bad for the giraffe too, but it's one giraffe in, in, in Copenhagen. So we can get upset over something like that, but we don't 
get very upset. Um, I think most of us would agree over um, a lot of real human suffering. The, the example you cite, the Syrian civil war. What does that say? It says we still have a lot of work to do. Now, um, we do that work by laws and by expectations and by obligations, uh, by uh, enormous education from the very beginning. We tap into uh, something that on its face is good in the human character, which is compassion for animals. By the way, I would add parenthetically that Judaism has an enormous school of thought and enormous teachings about uh, the importance of being kind and compassionate to animals. Uh, But we also uh, need to teach ourselves and uh, our children uh, priorities. You know, we need to establish priorities. That's something that religion, uh, too, is uh, quite preoccupied with. That is, how do you decide what to do? Not that there is uh, black and white, good and evil, that is completely clear, which is self-evident, but when there are competing goods or competing aims, how do you rank the good of not killing a giraffe in front of, uh, you know, several dozen schoolchildren with not killing several dozen schoolchildren in some war-torn country. That's really where we need to put our emphasis, and that's hard. That's hard thinking, that's hard decision-making, that's hard teaching, and it requires us to make decisions uh, on competing values. I wonder, as I hear you say that, I wonder if somehow... We might choose to exercise outrage over something like, you know, a a giraffe being killed in in front of children more than children themselves being killed in Syria. In the Syrian civil war, I think something like uh, nearly 8,000 children are among the victims in that war. I wonder if partly we get outraged over the giraffe more because the human suffering is just too difficult for us, that it's too existentially painful? That might be. That might be. First of all, we are able to sympathize and empathize with uh, people and with uh, creatures who are in front of us. I walk across uh, Central Park uh, every day and uh, on the way to work, and uh, there are, of course, dozens and dozens of dog owners walking their dogs. And and I notice that uh, people uh, treat their pets with enormous sensitivity. Uh, Very often I see cases in the uh, park where they treat uh, animals with much greater sensitivity and compassion than they treat uh, human beings. So there are a number of ways to look at this, right? It may be, as I suggested to Rabbi Hirsch, that human suffering is just too painful for us to deal with. But we should also acknowledge that showing such widespread compassion for animals is a positive step in the course of human development. Here's how Steve Levitt thinks about this from an economist's perspective. I think being nice to animals is a luxury good. I remember when I first went to China 14 years ago to adopt my daughter, and we went to an open-air market, and the animals they had to eat and the circumstances of these animals was just, to a Westerner, was outrageous. I mean, just they would eat anything seemingly, and uh, and the, you know, things were skinned and cats were in cages. I mean, it was crazy. And then when I went back about five years later to the same open-air market, what just amazed me is that suddenly they had a big 
section of the open-air market was devoted to fish tanks. And people had gone, in just five years, China had boomed in wealth from literally eating anything they could find to deciding it was fun to have animals for pets. And it really hit home to me the idea that when you're hungry and you're poor, the only thing you want out of an animal is to serve your needs. And then once you get rich and not so hungry, and then then you want animals to play with. And, you know, that's what's happening, I think, with, with the U.S. and the idea of organic and um, happy meat, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> Did you just call it happy meat? <laughs> yeah, what do they call it? Yeah, happy meat. That's what they call it. Now, Levitt, how do you feel about guacamole? I love guacamole. Mm. Do you feel any moral qualms about eating guacamole, let's say? I have never had one moral qualm about eating guacamole. Can I give you a reason to perhaps consider having a moral qualm about guacamole? Sure. It will only make me worse off, but go ahead and do it. <laughs> if you'd rather me not spoil it for you, I, I don't have no, to. I think I'm willing to take the hit so our listeners can get the pleasure of watching me suffer. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, if you are going to feel bad about animals being killed, whether for food or because of their genetic makeup, then you may want to re-examine your feelings about avocados. There are no conflict-free avocados. And could it just be that humans are our least favorite animal? I mean, my kids would gladly trade a human for a polar bear any day of the week. Economics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Hi, Jose. Yeah, hi. How are you? Hey, good. This is Stephen Dubner. Nice to meet you. Hey, Stephen. Same here. I recently had a conversation with a fellow named Jose de Cordoba. I'm a reporter for the Wall Street Journal based in Mexico. I not only cover Mexico, but large uh, areas in Latin America, depending where the news is coming from. A few months back, de Cordoba wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal that, for whatever reason, did not provoke the kind of outrage that accompanied the killing of Marius the Giraffe. But after hearing his story, you may wonder why it didn't. It was totally random. I wasn't looking to do a story about avocados at all. I was going to do a profile. The man he wanted to profile was a vigilante leader who was trying to get other people to join him in fighting a crime and drug cartel known as the Knights Templar. It used to be called La Familia and now is known as the Knights Templars. They're basically a huge extortion operation. They extort everybody and everything in Michoacán. Everything that moves is extorted. So de Cordoba was in the state of Michoacán, which is on Mexico's Pacific coast. And he was following this vigilante leader around. We ended up in this little town, Tancintaro, up in the mountains, which is the setting for the story. He had no idea how big the avocado industry is in this area. We entered the town through avocado groves. Then we passed this little, the statue of an avocado right in front of the town um, and took note of that. As it turns out, 80% of the avocados sold in the U.S. are grown in Michoacan, about 500,000 tons of avocados a year. More than 150,000 tons come from this one town, Tancitero. But it wasn't just the avocado statue that caught de Cordoba's eye when he drove into town. There are two burnt-out giant packing export packing houses, big, you know, big, big businesses for the area. And they were burned down on the same night. So what happened? As best as he could tell, these avocado packing houses got torched because their owners didn't pay the local criminal gang, the Knights Templar, the protection money they were supposed to. Uh, I was able to talk to a small packer, and he gave me the details about what he was paying. Growers who know the big packers say they're paying from anything from like 15000 a month to $20,000 a month. And it's not just getting a cut from sales of, you know, the avocados themselves and the packing and the trucking. You write that there's a, a cut of, let's say, fertilizer sales and so on, yes? Yeah, all up the production chain, people have to pay off the Templars or were paying off the Templars. You know, the guys who provide the fertilizers, the guys who provide the insecticide, the people uh, who provide the workers to go out and harvest the avocados, the, the, the trucks that transport the avocados to the packing houses, and, and so on. Okay, and what happens, what happens if I'm a trucker or a packing firm or a farm and I decide to not pay <laughs> you? Well, you got big problems. If you're a grower, and this could this may happen anyway, but you might have a family member kidnapped and held for ransom. That is exactly what happened to one local avocado grower. What happened was that the the daughter of a local Jehovah's Witnesses preacher, a person who was much esteemed in the area, uh, Maria Irene Villanueva, 
was kidnapped um, back in, that was in, in November. And she was kidnapped by the local Templar head, a guy named El Seco, the dry one. And uh, he demanded an 8 million peso ransom for her, which was something like $600,000. The father, who owned a small avocado grove, basically couldn't come up with the money. So what he was going to do was going to give the Templars his avocado grove in payment for his daughter. In the middle of all this, for some reason, she was killed. She was murdered. She was shot. This murder, de Cordoba says, swung the local momentum in favor of the vigilantes. And in some places, the Knights Templar seem to be in retreat. But it's a tenuous retreat at best. They are a powerful and profitable organization. Last year, they made an estimated $150 million. They're named after the Knights Templars, a medieval order of warrior monks. But they are enormously violent. And what has happened is that their main um, source of income was trafficking marijuana, meth, and cocaine. But they have branched out. And now I think they're by far they get much more income from all their different extortion rackets, which go from extorting avocados to extorting iron ore mines to extorting forest products. But they extort also everybody. So, like, if you are from a national pharmacy chain and you want to open up a pharmacy in some town in Michoacán, you're going to have to pay a payment there. The tortilla makers pay extortion to these guys. Everybody does. When's the last time you had an avocado? I eat them most days. I love avocados. Has has this changed your consumption at all or no? Uh, no, I, ate, I I love eating avocados. As a matter of fact, I, I think I'm eating more since I went, I went up there. Do you, you, you don't try to seek out kind of conflict-free avocados? There are no conflict-free avocados. No. So if you live in the U.S. and you eat avocados or mangoes or limes or other produce that comes from Mexico, there's a pretty good chance that some of the money you paid supports a violent criminal gang. So that guacamole you're eating? Made from blood avocados. Where is the outrage over that? If we're going to shed a tear over Marius the giraffe, how about we do the same for Maria Arena Villanueva, the preacher's daughter, was allegedly murdered by the Mexican gang because her father didn't pay his avocado protection money. The animal rights movement has gained a lot of strength in recent years. Most of us would agree that's a good thing. Some people have given up eating animals entirely to honor that movement. But the closer you look at what we eat and what we consume more generally, the more confusing the moral calculus becomes. So should we stop eating avocados and mangoes and limes, too? Jose de Cordoba, the Wall Street Journal reporter in Mexico, he doesn't think so. If you do that, you're going to be um, throwing a hell of a lot of people out of business in in Mexico. And they, uh, you know, that's about the only business that in that area that is, you know, the one and only business. I really do think it's a Mexican problem. I don't think the U.S. consumer should have to carry the weight of Mexico's blood avocados on their shoulders or whatever. You know, I mean, Mexico has to get its act together in terms of 
of justice in terms of being a state of law, you know? You can't allow these guys to run around and do this extortion. I really think of the market as somehow getting me out of any moral obligation. That's Steve Levitt again. I mean, when I go to the store, if the grocery store wants to sell me meat at some price, then the world's too complicated, I think, for me to try to figure out every transaction along the way and whether it was fair and whether it was fair to the people or the animals. And so I just figure that's the problem someone else has got to work out, the government or the producers or the ethicists, they figure out what's right and wrong. And then I feel like if I'm doing a market transaction, I don't really need necessarily to feel any guilt about it. All right. So let me ask you this. Person A, not you, not me. Person A walks into a restaurant and has a choice between eating, let's say, some chicken that has been raised and slaughtered in a traditional manner, meaning it's not happy meat, right? It hasn't had the most wonderful chicken life ever, have a choice between eating the chicken that may have suffered or the guacamole made from the avocados, which have an extortion tax built in, some of which money went to criminals who may have tortured, killed, kidnapped, raped the people associated with growing avocados. What's a person to do? Well, my basic answer which is a horrible answer, which people will hate, is that any individual person can't really do anything. And if you love guacamole... It's not what Gandhi said. <laughs> I mean, it's tough. I mean, obviously, there is a pull and there's a maybe a warmth and a goodness that comes from saying, having learned this, I will never eat avocados again. Having learned about the way chickens are raised, I will not eat chickens. But there's a pragmatism that comes with trying to live your life. And is it really true that anything will change in the avocado region if I stop eating guacamole? Well, no. So it's one of those things where you can, you can take an action because it matters, because it actually affects outcomes in other people's lives and prices and, and how many avocados are made. Or you can make an action because it's the right thing to do and because it feels good to do the right thing and because it's important to do the right thing. But I think it helps to be able to separate those two in your mind. I think people who do the right thing a lot, they get confused and they think that by doing the right thing, like not eating avocados, people get the idea that somehow they're making the world a better place. But they're really not. You know, to the first order, what they're doing is they're making themselves feel good and they're not affecting what I would call, say, the equilibrium. But that that's great. That's fine. But I think it's important when you make sacrifices to understand what your sacrifice actually accomplishes and what it fails to accomplish. Mm, that's a good way of putting it. So it strikes me that we humans are pretty good at selective outrage. We get really distraught about um, one type of offense. Maybe it's a moral offense. Whereas another one that may be very similar and maybe even be much larger and more egregious, we don't get upset about just because of the, the nature of what that offense is. So as a friend uh, pointed out, uh, when this giraffe was murdered in cold blood in this Copenhagen Zoo, uh, the world was aghast. And yet at the very same time uh, in Syria and many other places, there was horrible violence against humans happening that the world didn't care about at all. So 
Is this just um, a function of the way we filter information and get a little bit and act on what we hear and, um, and, and that's just the way it is? Or does it say something about our kind of appetite to get upset about things where the stakes kind of are lower? I mean, really, you know, one dead giraffe in a zoo really doesn't affect any of us, whereas tens or hundreds of thousands of people in some country being tormented, the stakes are very high, and yet we don't seem to be able to do anything about that either. Yeah, I, I think what it really tells us is about the power of a good story. And Marius is an amazing story. It, it's got all the elements that make stories exciting and good and, and um, moral and telling. And, and, and Syria isn't. Syria is a mess. You know, who knows what's going on in Syria? And indeed, I think a story about a single Syrian person is a thousand times more powerful than a story about a thousand Syrian people dying. And that, to me, ultimately, I mean, it's one of the things we talk a lot about in our new book is the power of storytelling, and you know, both for good and for evil. And I think that's what's going on, is Marius is like the greatest story ever. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe Marius caught the world's attention just because it was a particularly gripping story. But it could also be that as much as we humans talk the talk about caring for our fellow humans, when it's time to walk the walk, we actually prefer non-human animals. The kind of animal that doesn't talk and so can't say something we might disagree with. The kind of animal that hasn't made some sort of stupid or malicious decision that we morally object to. The kind of animal that we learn to love so much that not only do we never want to eat it, but we do anything we can to save its life. You know, it's funny, and I learned this from my kids, but really people, unless you press them, their natural reaction is to like animals better than other people. Uh, and you can see it with polar bears, right? The most effective thing that the climate change people have ever done is to show polar bears floating on little ice blocks in the in the Arctic Ocean. I mean, my my kids would gladly trade a human for a polar bear any day of the week. Levitt, um, a listener named Rebecca Pierce wrote in with a scenario. Okay, it's a question you have to answer. You're standing alone in the Arctic with a gun, which sounds like a place I could imagine Levitt being. Suddenly, you're attacked by a polar bear, the absolute last one left on Earth. Do you kill it or yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Who sent us this question? Her name is Rebecca Pierce. She's a university student in London. Okay, Rebecca, let me just say this. If there's only one polar bear left, that means there aren't going to be any polar bears in the future. And whether I kill that polar bear now or it dies on its own in a few years doesn't matter. So I definitely do my everything I can to kill the polar bear. Uh, not the answer I was expecting. So kind of on a technicality, you're going to, right? But I was if thinking... If there were two polar bears, a girl bear and a boy bear, then it would be a much harder Whole another story there. And Levitt, yeah. But I was imagining that you were just going to try to line yourself and the bear up with one bullet. That's the answer that I was envisioning for you. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, podcast listeners, on the next Freakonomics Radio, 
If I wanted to commit the perfect murder, not get punished at all, how would I do it? Yeah, it'd probably be a pretty good way to do it, I suppose, <laughs> without getting caught. In some places, you can hit a pedestrian with your car and get away scot-free. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC and Dubner Productions. Our staff includes David Herman, Greg Rosalski, Greta Cohn, Beret Lamb, Shruti Pinamanani, Susie Lechtenberg, and Chris Bannon. If you want more Freakonomics Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to Freakonomics.com, where you'll find lots of radio, a blog, the books, and more. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.